0: Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places: sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com/slash/LakevillePodcast. Again, that's patreon.com/slash/LakevillePodcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Els's. Els's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau royal Also sponsoring the podcast is Goodmix. Goodmix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Goodmix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFIL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.LikePhilPodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: Welcome to the LikePhil Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of being back in the studio and talking to filmmaker Jonathan Durand about his wonderful movie, Uh, Memory is Our Homeland. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan Thank you. Yeah. So do you here. go by Jonathan or John?
2: Depends who it is. My mom never accepted John as a name, so it was Jonathan when I was growing up. But
1: uh,
2: yeah, people call me John as well.
1: The but what do you prefer? That's a tricky question. Depends who it is. If, you if it's to... your grandmother, you prefer John. She called you John. She called me
2: Jonathan or yeah. Jonathanek, which John- is <laughs> sort of like a <laughs> Polish mangling of Jonathan.
1: So how would you, just for our listeners who haven't... Um, haven't seen the movie yet. You can see the movie uh, for free. Just if you go to Al Jazeera's site, there's a, a edited forty. It's like about forty five minute version mm-hmm. of the movie that's um, that's on the Al Jazeera site. And then, is there a place where people can see the longer, like hour and a half version of it
2: through Vimeo on demand? Yeah, if you go to the website memoriesarehomeown you can link through to uh, the the streaming. Uh, streaming site
1: and DVD purchases. Okay. If you want to buy a DVD, okay. So I we will put all those links on the website when this episode uh, goes out. I've seen um, the forty-five minute version and I've seen the the longer version. And, uh, and why don't you sort of tell our listeners what this what this documentary is about?
2: This, so. How long do we have? You know, <laughs> we, have go on a long we have time. as long as it takes. Okay. Uh,
1: as long as it takes. Great. <laughs> um, So
2: the brief tagline version would be, it's about uh, the history of Polish refugees in East Africa during the Second World War, how they ended up there, um, and what happened to them. Uh, Told through the story of my own grandmother who grew up in Eastern Poland and then afterwards in Iran and
1: Tanzania. Which is pretty wild. I mean, if you have a little Polish grandmother and she tells you, oh, yes, I was in Iran in Tehran and then I was, uh, you know, in Tanzania and all this stuff. It, it, it initially sort of, like I was saying before, it sounds like the movie Big Fish, you know, mm. where his dad is always telling these like crazy stories. And then, you know, he later on finds out that a lot of his dad's stories were true, right? That they were. Uh, so you you went to to Belarus which is where your family your Polish family because that used to be inside Poland at mm-hmm. one point you went to uh to Poland you went to Tanzania you went all over the place following this this story mm-hmm. um, and i don't know there's a lot of things that i really loved about the movie but i think probably what fascinated me most was this whole issue of of memory right mm-hmm. and that if you have of people that are connected to a particular place. This has been happening to humans as far back as we can tell. If they're displaced by war or they're displaced by something else, then uh, they often kind of have this idea of of the homeland, but it's largely a figment of their imagination, mm-hmm. right? And so then it's the whole question of well, if if they go back to the homeland, is it going to be there? And I and I've heard many. Um, sad and some very, very comical stories mm-hmm. about ha- what happens when these people actually go back. So, you know, one example that always springs to my mind is uh, my friend, Christian. His grandfather uh, was yet another one of these refugees mm-hmm. after World War II. Like, it was like what, 25 million refugees were made by World War II. I think that's the number. Yeah, I'm not Maybe sure. Maybe even more. Possibly, it might even yeah. be twice that. Anyway, um, Anyway, but... He was one of the Italian refugees. He ended up here in Montreal. And he would always, his constant refrain to his kids and grandkids was, oh, it's so much better. Everything Mm -hmm. tastes better. Everything's better. You know, women are modest. Children are well-behaved. Food tastes better. Mm -hmm. Everything was comparing to this place Mm -hmm. that he actually had only been when he was a little kid. yeah, And he had never gone back because he was a a working-class guy. Uh, He's in St. Leonard. He worked, you know, I think he was like a plumber or something like that but he didn't have time or money to go back mm-hmm. so finally when he's much older um his his wife had died he's kind of recently widowed he'd retired and he was kind of at loose ends and so the family all put together a bunch of money to uh, to have him do a grand tour mm-hmm. of the the homeland of oh and they they like got in touch with like distant relatives mm-hmm. in Italy who agreed to like show him around and like to greet him and stuff like that. They all put in like a bunch of money for him to go on this trip. Mm. He came back so fast. Like he was supposed to be there for like 6 months. He came back like <laughs> after like 2 weeks. He hated it because it turns out like the the Italy in his mind did not exist. The women were far less modest. The kids were dancing on drugs till four in the morning. Right. Uh, it was not, the food didn't taste better. They had right. McDonald's there. Like, so. The world had moved on from his yeah. memory. Yeah. And this is, but this is just this common thing with immigrant communities. They yeah. tend to, you know, the Irish have a, an idea of Ireland that, uh, an I- Ireland that probably never existed, but definitely doesn't exist now. Mm. Uh, you, my my wife's uh, on her father's side, they're Finnish, and F- Finnish diaspora tend to be way more conservative, way more uh, you know reactionary than Finns in Finland. Like they, they're horrified by actual Finland. Right? Mm-hmm. They're they're in love with the the Finland in their mind, right? So you're you're really like dealing with this head on in this documentary. Sure, where- yeah, it's complex. I mean, uh, you know,
2: identity in general. Even if you grow up in one place with your family being from there for multiple generations is going to be complex. Uh, In the case of my family, like with many other immigrant families and refugee families in Canada, uh, my grandmother had left quite young um, uh, from eastern Poland, deported to Siberia in 1940, just after the start of the Second World War by the Soviet Union. Um, And she never went back. She passed away in Montreal in 2012 and she had never stepped foot in Poland again. The place where she was from specifically was no longer in Poland anyways. So the Eastern borderlands, they call them kresy in, in Polish, um, after the Second World War, at the end of it, it had actually become part of the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union was dissolved, it be, those places became parts of Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine. So I believe her sister went back once. Her sister lives in Sheffield, uh, England. She went back right after the fall of the wall, but had a similar experience, uh, you know, that you were describing where she went back and she was distraught because she's like, this is nothing like what we remember. Of course, the houses were all gone. You know, none of the people that they knew were left. uh, And I think it probably forced her to confront the memory of the deportation and everything that they had lost everything that they had been through. But, you know, for them, it really, it was just sort of this mythical place that existed in their head, Poland, you know? But Poland for them ultimately was, you know, secret Polish lessons in Siberia and the Gulag when they were there. It was, uh, you know, the camps in Iran and Africa. Like I have my grandmother's high school um, report cards from Tanzania, from the refugee camp stamped with the official seal of Poland as if they were regular report cards from a regular Polish high school, except they were issued in Tanzania at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro in a refugee camp. So for her and for all these other refugees, there there was that experience of like, you know, their idea of Poland was really frozen in time in amber. You know, their accent, their Polish accent was of a lost place. You know, like people poles would talk to my grandmother and say her accent is fascinating it's like she's coming from a completely different era right um so the film was really in part pushed by this quest to figure out where we were from specifically both literally and figuratively like where where do we come from if my polish grandmother grew up in Tanzania in Iran as a refugee and spent 11 years at most in Poland like how polish is she And if she's something other than Polish, what is that? And how does it affect me? So the film is sort of pushed, you know, um, driven by those sort of questions that I was asking myself.
1: Yeah. Well, I I just, I think these questions, it ends up being often a sort of turtles all the way down kind of like situation. Because how do you decide who belongs? you know, almost anywhere, you know, but but I love these lags that you're talking, that you talk about in this movie a lot, because, you know, like, for instance, if you go down to, uh, you look at, like, Navajo art and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw some of it, I was kind of taken aback, because you're in the middle of the fucking desert, it's like super, there's no oceans anywhere close by, and yet Mm -hmm. their art is filled with uh, killer whales, you know, the orcas and all these, like, sea right. creatures and, and various kinds of – and salmon. There's no salmon, mm-hmm. like, down there. Like, And I was asking around, and apparently it's because the Navajo were not originally from the deserts of the southwest. They are originally from the Pacific Northwest, like around what is now, like, British Columbia and right. Washington, Oregon. Uh, more technologically advanced, uh, more badass kind of tribes – pushed them out, they were Mm -hmm. displaced and driven uh, gradually down into the center of North America, into, you know, where very often the losers of wars end up living, like the Cree live up in, like, the Canadian Shield and the shitty, really cold, (laughs) difficult to deal with parts, or down in deserts. Mm -hmm. And they often, but they often bring mythology and ideas and traditions that didn't start off in the subarctic or the arctic they started off in much you know greener pastures as it were and so they explained to me i was completely blown away mm. that you have these people who've been living for generations in a desert and they still have all of these memories of the ocean mm. and all of this iconography of killer whales and stuff like that like just you know so i think like your these pull they have this idea of poland mm. but they haven't really lived there, you Mm -hmm. know, for the vast majority of their life. Yeah. You know,
2: I just came back uh, yesterday uh, from the eastern townships, from the Polish family dacha, right? So in the 60s, my grandparents had bought like a one-acre plot of land out there with about 15 or 20 other Polish families. So they had bought this huge plot of land, divided between all of them, and they'd all built their little cabin, their little A-frame wooden house on these tiny pieces of land in the countryside. Uh so I spent my summers up there with my grandmother and all of these other Polish people at the time in their 50s, 60s, you know, 70s. And it was only, you know, the process of making the film that I started to realize that all of the people in that little community, all of these older <clears throat> all of these older Polish people were all refugees who had gone through Africa like my grandmother. And in some cases, they'd grown up together in Tanzania in the refugee camp. Um, so the first time I went to Belarus and I went back to the village that my family had originally been from, what do you know? The village actually looks like the one that I grew up spending my summers in in the eastern townships. They had recreated essentially the same village the same villages that they'd been born in and deported from when they were 10, 11, 12 years old. So they'd sort of lifted up and, you know, grafted this version of their childhood onto the landscape in the eastern townships in Quebec, you know, and it was really this astonishing moment for me to realize that, you know, they'd actually managed to sort of import uh, of course, their memories. They brought all of this with them, but they'd actually brought it to life again. They'd created a whole community in the townships.
1: You know, that so. is completely that. That's wild. But it does seem to be such a, a basically human thing, because yeah. you look at the globe and everywhere people immigrate to, you see, you know, New York, New London, New Caledonia, New mm-hmm. Spain, New France, New, and then they they come to a new place and they immediately you know start naming the town and the streets Mm. and recreating the, you know, the former place in this new place. Right. And that's, and it does seem to be, I don't know, it's like this very hardwired human thing. And then what happens is at a certain point down the road sometimes is some of the kids and grandkids and great grand. there's this point at which they stop just trying to, you know, relive some connection to some other place. And Mm -hmm. they actually put down, roots And become a part of the new place, sometimes I guess that never happens, but usually it does happen at a certain point they uh, you know they what do they call it now the 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 kids are calling it indig- indigeneity or something like that where you sort of go become a part of the place that you live in mm-hmm. rather than always um, recreating you know a previous place i mm-hmm. mean because that can become i'm sure, and you you sort of Like gesture, try this in a couple places in the movie. That that can become sort of pathological, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can be so trapped in memories that it's there's no space for new memories, Mm -hmm. in a way that there's uh, there's no space for the the real and the living to the present moment. Yeah, actually, thank you. That's that's yeah. There's there's no place for it to get in. I mean, for me, the most horrific image of this is. You know that Black Mirror episode, the entire history of you, where you see the couple and they're in bed and they're they're having sex, and but they're not actually having sex with each other in the present moment. They're both with their grains, replaying like sexual experiences that they had at the beginning of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So they're they're not actually engaging in the present tense with each other in this this intimate moment, right? they're sort of like cheating on each other with each other, with the memory of each other. <laughs> like it's very, very right. weird, but it seems to be that a temptation for um, for diaspora communities all over the world, as far back as we can tell, is that you end up being like like that couple. You're not really yeah. intimately engaging with what's happening now because you're just stuck in a memory loop.
2: I can't remember the, please don't quote me on this, but uh, the origins of the word and concept of nostalgia. But from what I remember, it was uh, an ancient Greek um, medical diagnosis for soldiers far away from home who were essentially homesick, right? But they were seen to have this condition uh, called nostalgia of living in the past. They weren't living in the moment they were in. They were back at home with their families. And because their, their present reality didn't reflect, you know, it was in conflict with their memory, they couldn't actually function properly as soldiers. Um, and I think there, there is, you know, there's both uh, in the case of this movie and these people, my family and all the other survivors, uh, the concept of Poland, their identity, and uh, their connection to the place they came from and the culture they came from is part of what helped them get through the deportations, the the you know the journey from Siberia down to Uzbekistan, where tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people died, through Iran and into Tanzania, and then slowly piecing together who of their family had survived, who was gone, and who had disappeared and would never you know be be heard from, or no story would come about to what had happened to them. So Poland became this thing that represented you know. Um, a foundation and a sense of groundedness there, you know, that identity for them was a, was a coping mechanism in part. It was a thing to be proud of. Of course it was who they were, but it was also something that they held on to in order to get them through the very real traumas that they were uh, confronted with, you know, on a daily basis. And uh, you know, in my grandmother's case it, in the film, you see it, she considered herself Canadian and a Montrealer, um, Polish. Yes, but also Canadian. Whereas her sister, who stayed in England after the war, after the refugee camps were closed, um, doesn't see herself as English because that's more of like a an ethnic designation in, in England. It's more of, you know, at least the community she's in, people think of Englishness as this, you know, ethnic thing. Whereas for her, she's like, I'm not from here. I'm neither from Poland. I'm neither Polish nor English. I'm a stranger in Poland. I'm a stranger in England. You know, so... Depending on where the person ends up, they can have a very different uh, experience of, of their identity.
1: You know. Yeah. Well, what you're saying about nostalgia, I I remember. I mean, you're you're remembering correctly. That's that's definitely there. Uh, but there's a two people in the 20th century that that sort of revived and talked a great deal about the the whole issue of nostalgia. Um mid his work on suicide, he he talked about uh, this phenomenon that happens, he says, most human communities, you know, as far back as we can tell, they would be connected to particular places. So Mount Royal, the St. Lawrence River, like mm-hmm. the river, the mountain, uh, the landmarks, there would be like, oh, this is where, you know, my ancestors are buried. This is where like, and so you'd have total connection to place and the whole culture was very much related to a physical place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then what would happen was because of displacement. Most of the time, if people were kicked off of their land, if they're driven away from their land, like the Navajos being going down to the Southwest, then they would lose all their culture and you would have mass dysfunction, lots of people committing suicide. You'd have like just everything falling apart. You would have this mm-hmm. whole thing of like anomie. but he said, then there's like a couple of groups and he says the Jews were the first ones to really do this in a big way. Mm-hmm. They, He says one of the great cultural innovations of uh, the Jews is that they figured out how to make culture portable. So you destroy our temple, well, we can now have like, okay, we no longer have like priestly Judaism, but we can have like rabbinical Judaism. And it, we're going to, everybody's going to know the Torah and we're going to teach them Torah and stuff like that. And so now you've created a culture that that is portable, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of amazing and then he talks about like other cultures doing that and i kept thinking of durkheim when i was watching your movie the, the second time that they basically did that they found a way to like keep this identity and it was like a, a life raft for them it kept them from just descending into total uh, you know despair and you know which is amazing
2: definitely i mean i think that's, uh, connected to the history of Poland, being where it is in in Europe and Central Europe, you know, between great powers, uh, having been invaded from every direction, really. Yeah. You is know, there like, any
1: people who have been more fucked over than Poland? I, you, I mean, probably a couple, but it's it's messed up. I mean, like
2: it's uh, you know, it doesn't benefit from the easiest geography, and yet the the I think like the you know Polish culture, really one of the strongest parts of it for me is the storytelling because of where they are and where they're located, I mean, it, it over history has meant that people, if they wanted to keep their culture alive, had to find innovative ways to do that. Right. So, you know, you look at the partitions of Poland in the, the 17 to 1800s, not existing as a country for almost 125 years until the first world war, they managed to keep the culture alive and thriving, even though there were assimilationist uh, policies under Tsarist Russia and, you know, the other partitioning powers. So, you know, uh, one of the things that came up, like, in Q&As would be, you know, are you Polish? Like, do I consider myself Polish? And um, that's a complicated thing to answer, but I think at the end of the day, storytelling, the fact that I wanted to tell the story or that I did tell the story, I think is part of, uh, you know, being Polish because it's really, it's the act of keeping that history alive, you know, just by telling that story and then passing it on to the next generation of storytellers um, because it is important to me, and it does feel like where I'm from, you know. Not a place, but from this history of survival and resilience and uh, also deep openness to, you know, deep humanity, you know. A lot of the Poles who went through this, yes, they were against the Soviet regime, of course. Like, they lost everything. I mean, it was horrifying what they went through, but they would all say average Russians we encountered were the ones who helped keep us alive. You know, they would share their food, they would give us shelter, they would protect us from whatever. Um so these people are cognizant of the fact that like that other group of people, they're not the enemy. The system, the 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 uh the state authority is is the real um villain of the story. But other human beings, whether they be in Russia, Kazakhstan Persians, uh, or in East Africa, like the people that they encountered actually helped keep them alive.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, one of the disturbing parts of your movie for me was, uh, I can't remember who it's talking. It's like one of the academics, um, like, I guess a historian or something. She has books behind her and all the images, (laughs) but, and she says, you know, there was this moment where you tell people that, um, you know, there were all these Polish, citizens that were deported to Siberia and, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, and you'd have like a like a, a kind of a good lefty, you Mm -hmm. know, really kind of pro-Soviet and sort of apologists saying, like, oh, they must have been fascists. You know, because... Or that didn't happen. Just, Mm -hmm. like, you know, gaslighting them straight up. Or, like, saying, okay, well, if it did happen, it's... You must have, you know, well, what were you wearing? Like, you know... Like, you must have been, like, fascists. You must have, like, brought this... Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, what do, what do you think about all of, I mean, you, you sort of just show it in the movie, but what do you, that must have been very, really annoying. Like,
2: You know, when it happened to me, I, I was at McGill, I was 19 or 20 probably, I was in my undergrad, and it was um, a professor who just sort of like offhandedly said like, I don't know about this history, are you sure? Like, of course I'm sure, It's it's my family, you know, these are the stories I grew up with, I have the photos, I have the the history. I know, you know, I've, I know I'm surrounded by people who went through it, but the fact that it wasn't in the literature, it wasn't studied, you know, this is 1999, probably 2000. And Irina Tomashevska was in the film. She was at McGill probably 20 years before me. So before the fall of the wall, before the archives were opening in Russia and the former Soviet Union, um so I was there a few years later but it still hadn't become part of you know the uh, part of uh, academia yet people weren't studying this. So now that started to change but at the time it was uh it was confusing more than it was annoying because I was too young to really know the facts about the history, you know. Like I look back at some of my grant proposals for this film like way back 2008 2009 And the history that I'm describing is not the history I came to learn, like the actual political history. So I didn't really understand the facts at the start of this process, right? So for a professor to tell me that didn't happen, there's enough doubt in me because I don't know the facts. I haven't been shown them. There are no books or movies. The doubt in me was enough that I was willing to believe it, you know, or at least I questioned whether or not the stories I'd been hearing were true, or what was true about them and what wasn't. So, it was more of a confusion, really. I mean, I, you know, I'm growing up in Canada as a assimilated Canadian, like white, Christian raised, uh, you know, cisgendered white, you know, Canadian male with a bilingual Canadian name, with this weird history that doesn't fit into, you know to what I'm being, I was told growing up that uh, uh, we were supposed to be. So it took a long time to
1: kind of piece together what that was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that you know, very often if a particular part of a story, like your family's story, if it doesn't fit in neatly into a national narrative – whether it be the the narrative of the Soviet Union or the narrative of the Allies or even the narrative of the new Polish state, if it doesn't fit in neatly, it tends to just get um, edited out and erased. I mm. mean the uh, I remember I think in John Rawls Saul in his book uh, Voltaire's Bastards, he talks about how you know there there was this big revolution that happened in Corsica, the Corsican Revolution, and it was like it was history. Everybody knew about it. It was news all over the world. It was just as much of a big deal as the French Revolution, uh, so much so that if you go in records, you can find that all sorts of uh, children, uh, even in Montreal, mm. um, in Montreal in Toronto, um, in New York, all in the American colonies and stuff like that, all sorts of children were named after uh, heroes of the Corsican Revolution. Mm. These were like rock stars. They were like the emerging sort of... Uh, Enlightenment and all that stuff, Uh, but then because the Corsican Revolution like was put down, and Napoleon and was Corsican ended up like betraying the French Revolution and doing everything, he suddenly the story of the Corsican Revolution didn't fit into Mm. any national narrative, and so it was just swept under the rug and almost nobody's heard of it now, Mm. right? And uh, you know there is this problem, but one of the things that's interesting for me, you know watching your movie is that it amazes me that these traumatized people had the presence of mind to try and gather evidence, like to take photographs and to do things. It's almost as if, okay, like tell me if I'm just like really going out on a limb here, but it almost seems like they knew people are going to say this shit didn't happen. Like we need to actually have some proof that this happened.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's important to remember that the Polish government – notwithstanding having been driven out from Poland was still functioning out of London as the Polish government in exile. So they were working with the British, um, and the allies in general to try to document this because they, they, they understood, you know, the allies had an interest too in keeping track of these things, not just because of, concern for what had happened to these people but because they they wanted to control the information too the Soviet Union was their ally right during the second world war from 1941 until the end of it so um they i think it was important they did understand you know the Polish government understood that it was essential to keep track of what had happened in part because once the war ended and they were going to discuss the terms of what was to happen to Poland territorially with the population, um, they would want a record of what had happened under the Soviet occupation, um, which was a story of you know mass persecution. And the numbers to this day are not fully um, – they're not – they haven't been confirmed, uh, but it's somewhere between 350,000 and a million roughly – the numbers surely exist somewhere in Russia in an archive, but to this day, they haven't been released, right? So back then, they were trying to keep track of what had happened so that these things could be dealt with and, and, you know, throughout the war and at the end of it. Um, and then, of course, because the Soviet Union was allied with England and the United States and Canada, that history did end up getting swept away. And even though there were newsreels in the Second World War that talked about the polls in, in Iran, um, after the war those were never seen again. And the story just sort of disappeared. Uh so the histories existed in archives, spread it a little bit everywhere all over the world, um, but pretty much unknown outside of the families who had gone through it and their descendants.
1: Mm-hmm. Well it you know, I had I had this dream about <laughs> the night after I watched your movie for the first time, I had this dream that you went back and you somehow, I don't know, with some new technology, like, you you found the deeds that they had buried below the house before they were deported? Because you, you talk at one point about how, like, a lot of families would bury the deeds to their property, like, under – somewhere safe so that afterwards they yeah. could come back and claim their – They buried a lot of stuff. Their homeland. Yeah. And I – you know, I, I must confess, the first time I saw it, Ruby, I was really hoping that that was going to be the – the rabbit out of the hat, rather than a brick. <laughs> when you like, yeah. you, you got a brick from the home and from brought it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I was hoping you would somehow randomly like find like you know these documents. But yeah. I know that that's crazy, the, right? But I, I I was hoping you. Would. There
2: was a bigger story there actually, because the this is part of what got edited out of the film. But uh, the longer anecdote is when my mother, my grandmother, passed away. At her funeral, one of uh, her nieces, I guess, her cousins, came up to me. Sorry. Um, She came up to me and said, uh, or asked if I had found the treasure in Belarus. And I said, What do you mean? Have I found the treasure? What are you talking about? She's like, Your grandmother never told you? Told me about what? Well, when the war started, all the men in our collective families put everything together and buried it in a large chest under this specific place, including swords from the 17 or 1800s, like passed down through the family, old uh, family heirlooms, jewelry, whatever, and the deeds to the land. Um, in the end, we cut that out because it, it seemed like it was going to set up this like treasure hunt. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the fact is that this stuff ostensibly exists somewhere and it's, you know, it's kind of part of the – the fact that it ends up being a brick that I dig up is – there's a point to that in a way. It's like, well, I mean, I could find a treasure, but this represents something too. You know, it's, the, it's a tangible trace of a thing that I've been told for so long. But you can't put it in your purse. Can't put it in your purse, yeah. <laughs> She
1: says that. that. was very funny. Yeah. But the – no, because that's – and I'm wondering, like, did they give you any weirdness when you went back there? Um, to Belarus? Yeah, about you being... Because I, I know this uh, former prof of mine when I was an undergrad at Concordia, Steve Scheinberg, his family was originally from from Poland. They were Polish Jews and they, you know, well, you know, all that horrible story. And he went back, like, you know, years later, right? And was traveling. He wanted to go and see where his family was from. Very, you know, similar to the kind of mm-hmm. stuff that, that you were doing. And he said people were very very weird with with him and his wife and they uh he gradually found out that they were scared uh, with especially like you know Polish mm-hmm. Jews coming back that they were going to claim their land and they were uh, they were afraid that they would come back uh with with deeds to properties and things like that and say like you're actually you know, you're living on my family's land, and how did you get this? And so they were very worried about, um, and so they would get, like, wrong directions from locals. They would get the cold shoulder. They would get dirty looks. They would get a lot of weirdness. I'm wondering if you got any kind of a weird vibe going back. No,
2: I mean, to start with, it's it's a bit, it's different. It's a different history. It's a different situation. Um, To this day, there is a lot of, uh, there still are, you know, property claims being sorted out 80 years later from the end of the war. It's very, it's still a very complicated thing. Um, in my case, when I went back, I ended up befriending the family that I met, right? The elderly guy, uh, Vasily, who I met had actually worked with my great uncle. They'd been friends. They went to school together and the family, um, in the Russian family was actually really, uh, hospitable accommodating and and very kind towards me, in part because I think they had had a good relationship with my family, like the or i should say my great great grandparents and the others in that community the you know when the first world war ended and Poland was put back on the map uh there was a short war between the between the Poland and the soviet union the polish Bolshevik war where Poland ended up taking over this territory that they claimed through their history had belonged to them. Other countries claimed with you know uh, strong evidence that it belonged to them, but this is the story of Europe, land being traded back and forth between different people. So when um, my family had arrived in that part of Poland, which is now Belarus in the 1920s, there were actually very few Poles to start with, and many of them ended up becoming Uh, essentially landlords over little feudal territories. So there was this history of serfdom in that part of uh, central Europe that had never really gone away. So for a lot of the Belarusians and Ukrainians and Lithuanians in that part who were basically subsistence farmers, you know, smallhold farmers uh, under the Russian empire until the end of the First World War, the Russian landlords got replaced with the Polish landlords who came in. And in many cases were not, you know, they were exploiting the people of the communities. So there were some bitter memories with a lot of those, those, uh, you know, those, those families or those people who had done that. So I was lucky in that that hadn't been the case for us. So they were completely, you know, on the contrary, by the last time, last time I went, they were, uh, Valentina, who's was woman in the film, was trying to convince me to go to Minsk and to track down the deeds in the National Registry and, you know, that uh, we should try to sort something out. And, I mean, it seemed a little bit far-fetched, but, uh, yeah, that's what she was suggesting we do.
1: Yeah, it'd be kind of fascinating. It's interesting that, that there actually are evidence. There are documents. There are photographs and things like that because it makes me think, for most of the history of our species you know, which they keep pushing back how long it is. You know, they they, looks like we've been more or less like we are now for hundreds of thousands of years now, uh, which is just a mind-blowing thought for me, (laughs) the fact that there were people that were just as conscious and intelligent as we are, you know, 150,000 years ago. I mean, think about how many civilizations and cultures have just rose and fallen, and we have no... Memory of them, nothing like that. But everything back then was basically oral traditions. You, mm. you would—that's how you—you you would go. I would go talk to my grandmother and grandfather and get the stories of my people. You would get it from from your grandparents, and then that would pass on through oral tradition. But now, uh, and if they died or there was a transmission problem, then those stories died. Right, and I, I love that wonderful. It's I think it's a Swahili. Uh, inscription over in the cemetery in Tanzania, where it's like, if we forget them, O Lord, please forget about us, or something like that. The, mm. And
2: I, it's a quote, yeah. It, uh, that's
1: really great. I mean, like, how is the exact... I, I probably messed it up. It it's uh, something like that. It was like a prayer that, you know, we need to remember them or forget us. Is it? Yeah,
2: we, yeah, we, basically we are... We need to remember them, or else God, you will forget us. Essentially, like this is a, a sort, of, it's sort of like a sacred duty to remember um, the people. You know, the 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 truth of what had happened. Essentially, I mean, there's a, of course, like a very strong Catholic uh, element to it, but beyond that, I mean, the deeper sort of human truth about it is to keep these people alive who've disappeared or who've been lost or who you know who who have been killed or or who have suffered in one way or another so there's this really strong strong urge in the culture to remember those stories and i mean that's that's found in cultures around the world that's not a polish thing yeah uh the country having had the history it's had there's a really strong element of that but it's elsewhere as well i mean i've been reading uh Vasily Grossman. Do you know him? He was a Russian Soviet writer, um, who, uh, he was a, he was a journalist in the second world war and then, uh, ended up writing a couple books about Stalingrad, one of which was called life and fate. And the book ended up being arrested by the, by the communist authorities, not the writer, but the book, the book was arrested and he was told, uh, when that happened, that the book was too dangerous to be released in the Soviet Union for the next two hundred years, essentially. Yeah, and the reason for that was because he was trying to capture the truth of what had happened—not the party line, but the actual deeper human experience of the camps, uh, you know, the the concentration camps, as well as what had been happening in Russia. Um, so the book was considered too dangerous because it showed this deeper human urge to to hold on to the truth, you know, against all odds, against all forces, to hold these memories alive and keep them alive because then you keep the people alive. Uh, so that was too dangerous, of course. So the book uh, was unpublished until 1980
1: or something. Wow. It finally got out. It. It, it's amazing how... These the interesting moments when a particular story, which is true and is documented, complicates the narrative, and so they're just like we don't want to hear this. I mean, I I had a guy on the podcast a couple of years ago who had basically he through part of his research he decided to translate this particular book from French into English, and because he thought it was, and it was all on slavery in New France, and. In in translating this book, he ended up finding out the history of the book, and this guy, the guy who wrote it, was a very prominent Quebec historian. Um, he was at uh, UDM, Université Montréal, and he this book. Like numerous readers told him, do not publish this book because it was at the height, you know, things Quebec nationalism was on the rise, and they had a particular, you know, Pierre Valliere, you know, Negre Blanc Meric, and stuff like that. They had this whole narrative of us as victims of mm. the, you know, the horrible, like the English and the various things like this. This story, uh, which is about, you know, Francophones, uh, French Canadians owning slaves, including African slaves, right here, and, and, being slaveholders for centuries and enslaving Native people. This does not fit with our narrative at all. And so this guy was so blacklisted and harassed mm. that he ended up having to move. Um, he, he, they, the board got together. They got rid of his tenure, which is very hard to do. Mm. And he ended up spending the rest of his uh, career at the University of uh, in Ottawa. He was um, in Ottawa, I think Carlton or you know, I can't remember which one, but he spent the rest of it. He was a historian who was very, very... And so, yeah, it's just, it's interesting when they're... And you see this in the States now with the 1619 Project where people are freaking out like, you can't tell this story because it's going to make kids be unpatriotic and like all this stuff. It's uh, The truth can be very inconvenient.
2: Yeah, the truth can be dangerous, even old truths like that. I mean, over time, they start to lose their uh, power. But, you know, uh, a good example of this is uh, a somewhat recent example is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, the sort of westernization of, of the political culture there, there was a period where the archives started being open and they started acknowledging uh, these historical facts, like the massacre at Katsin or uh, the Poles being deported to Siberia. Um, And then sometime around the early 2000s or a little bit later, 2010 or so under Putin, these things started to disappear. So for 20 years, they were accepted as truth after 70, 80 years of the Soviet Union denying that any of it had happened. So for 20 years, they were acknowledged again. And then under Putin slowly some of these things have started to disappear. So in a couple of cases, I've gone to do some research, clicked on a link that goes to a you know Ministry of uh, Culture and History in Russia webpage that is supposed to talk about the massacre at in. and you get a 404. The page no longer exists. Ergo, the history doesn't exist, right? Or it feels that way. It's very ephemeral and dangerous. Um, but I think one of the the big revelations for me in making the film wasn't just you know to go in and find the documents showing that these things had happened in the Soviet Union um, and to show how that history had been erased there by that government, but also that it had happened in the West. so to go into the British Archives and to see the behind the scenes correspondence about the the refugee camps in East Africa. You start to see like 1945, 46, the people in these camps, the Poles who had been deported to Siberia, gone through the Soviet Union, through the gulags, had managed to get out and had been in Tanzania for three or four years in these camps. They weren't going to go back to Poland. Poland was now controlled by the same people who had deported them. So they had zero interest in doing that. They knew it was dangerous. And in any case, the places they were from were no longer in Poland anyways. So they couldn't go back to where they were from. So they stayed in the camps for, you know, 1946, 47, 48, 49, because they couldn't go back to where they were from. The British were running these camps, and at a certain point, they're like, okay, well, we have to, we can't keep these people here forever. So they started um, allowing them to immigrate to Australia or or to England. But the conversations behind the scenes about what to do with these people and who they were, what they represented – there are some deep, deeply problematic things about it, you know, like the deeply racist towards the Poles, uh, you know, as as Slavs, but of course, like the entire colonial order. So you, I'd read about Poles who, you know, the the British camp authorities saying like, look, we, we got to do something about these people. They keep trying to take the third class rail tickets. Like they're trying to buy tickets to take the trains in the class they're not supposed to be in. In other words, the white Poles are trying to take the trains with the Tanzanians or the Kenyans or in the different camps. That's Like, we can't allow that, right? Um, But for the Poles, they're like, it's the cheapest ticket. Why would I not take this? We're refugees. We don't have money. So when you start to dig away at it, you see that it it really undercuts the sort of heroic, fighting for freedom, you know, Western uh, narrative. Like, you start to See the kind of moral ambiguity behind a lot of these things you know mhm it's
1: yeah no i get i i I got that that came through I, I'm wondering, did you ever get to the bottom of what the rationale for actually deporting them was i mean because i I sort of understand why why the Nazis you know wanted to deport um You know, wanted to get rid of Jews and gypsies and various other groups that they couldn't stand and stuff like that. And I kind of get why the Soviet Union, uh, according to their logic, wanted to get rid of people who had been um, kind of anti-communists and who had been, you know, various things like that. But I, I just didn't understand. I couldn't get a clear read on why they targeted your family.
2: I mean, it wasn't just my family. It was hundreds of thousands of other people. But why they were included? Um, The answer is pretty simple, basically. I mean, recidivism, the the Soviet Union, um, you know, which had, you know, basically Russia at the end of the First World War when Poland became a country again, carved out this big piece of land that had been part of the Russian Empire. And they weren't happy about that in Moscow. Um, And of course, in in Germany, they felt the same thing, that Poland shouldn't exist at all. Um, So deporting all of these people had two goals. One was to get rid of all these people who were Polish-speaking and, you know, Polish ethnicity. Um, Catholics and Jews, you know, Orthodox Christians as well, um, but Polish citizens empty those lands of those types of people. And at the same time, because the Soviet union was trying to industrialize and making a huge push towards that at all costs, you could then use these people to build work camps and forced labor camps in the Soviet union. So you'd essentially get free labor or or low paid labor. Uh, So the idea wasn't just to deport the men who could go and work in these places, but deport the entire families. So that way you had no Polish people left in that part of what would be the Soviet Union. But you had new workers in, you know, Krasnovodsk or Umsk or, or wherever across, uh, across Russia.
1: Okay. And then after the war, they get, uh, do, they, do they stay there? Do they, I mean, do, do all of them end up Kind of immigrating somewhere like like your your family from from East Africa, yeah, or wherever they ended up.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the war ended in forty five. Most of Poland was was um, liberated, or you know, taken by the Soviets in nineteen forty four. So f- nineteen forty four forty five, people start to ask, okay, can we go back? <clears throat> And it becomes clear pretty quickly that if you go back, you're going to face pretty intense uh, scrutiny and persecution. Some people were redeported deported to Siberia. Um, so they waited it out a bit, not just in Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda and the camps there, um, but also in um, Iran, uh, in Palestine, and Jordan, the different places they had camps. India as well. Um, so most of them stayed on until the 19, late 1940s and at that point the government of england said members of the polish army basically the men who had been in the polish army could come to england with their families and any women and children in the camp who didn't have families would be sent to australia or sorry who didn't have men in the family um so the majority you know went to those two places and then came on to montreal and a lot of them came to montreal from england um and apart from that, I think there were about a thousand of them that stayed on in East Africa and most of those migrated to South Africa uh, over the next twenty years or so.
1: Yeah. It's a I don't know if you've checked out Tony Jute's like magisterial book post war. It's this, like giant book and it's all about kind of well, everything that happened in Europe, like he gives background in the interwar period and during the war, but it's mainly like the sorting afterwards and his sections on in that book on Poland are absolutely mind blowing, but but he says Poland was similar to other European countries in the sense that they were way way more multicultural and like diverse and multi ethnic before the war than after. There was this massive sorting process that happened. Uh, Hitler and Stalin together, uh, he says, are the big you know ironically perhaps are the big sort of fathers of modern Europe. And so he gives like the percentages on all different countries. But I remember the Polish one was really striking. So like Poland in 1939 was 68% ethnically Polish. So like, you know, two thirds of the population of Poland was Polish. After the war, it was like way higher, like in the 90s. -hmm. So they had gotten rid of either through extermination, through concentration camps, through exporting people and being people ending up elsewhere, people ending up in Montreal, people end up uh, but this had happened to all these countries were way, way more ethnically homogeneous than they had been before and so uh, Germany is another really striking one, it was like it was less than half of the people living in Germany were ethnically German and afterwards it was like the vast majority were German and this is the case like all over the place and uh, but especially places like Belarus or what became Belarus, like those places used to be just incredibly complicated multicultural places where there were lots of languages and different languages happening. And hmm. that was mostly removed. I mean, so how does that how does that sort of fit into your story? If you have this new gleaming Poland that's newly independent and, you know, eventually in the post-war period, how do – do your family stories fit into that Poland.
2: I mean, first of all, the concept of borders, like hard borders with checkpoints and you know passport control to go between two European countries, that's a very modern phenomenon, right? Like the the borders of European countries have been very uh, loose for most of most of the history, you know, and going all the way back to the ancient Romans, like when they gave Roman citizenship to most people in Europe, you know, that the idea that you were from one specific place and you draw a line around it and say, this is our country and the people in it are all of the same ethnicity is a very, very recent phenomenon. Uh, Poland has a really complicated history and, uh, you know, there are say I think there are different ideas or visions of what that country is, like in any other culture um in the case of Poland, it's got the history that is like the most multi ethnic or one of the most multi ethnic states in Europe with a strong constitution protecting the rights of minorities, religious and cultural which is part of the reason why so many uh, Ashkenazi Jews ended up in Poland was because of those protections. Right up to, you know, the Second World War, when the war started, it was very diverse and people with Polish citizenship could be of a very, you know, be from a different ethnicity. They, They weren't necessarily Polish at all, but they had the protections of the Polish state. And that's a long tradition in Poland going back a thousand years, right? I mean, there, the concept of the other in that country is, is very interesting because there are those who would say as long as you adhere to the values of the country, then you are a Polish citizen and will be considered as such. At the same time, there was the complete opposite view, which is it's an ethnic identity and anybody who doesn't you know, adhere to these certain things, often it's about Catholicism and faith and whatnot, but also blood, um, then you're not considered Polish. You know, there's this very ethnic definition of it. And you're right, by the end of the war, that's kind of what the country had become. You know, it had become a very white, Catholic, ethnic Polish. Um, so it, it it's hard to say. I mean, I, in the film, I don't really go to Poland. I think there are a few kind of like incidental images of it but the the idea isn't to go back to that country and find out how i fit into it it's to try to figure out where this movable version of it this like historical version of it try to locate that so it's hard for me to say i mean i've been a dozen times to poland i have good friends there and i i feel connected to it it's it's not where i'm from
1: yeah i mean i guess where would you where would you, I say, you identify most? You know, in terms of your identity, like where are you from? From Montreal, I <laughs> I'm a Montrealer. Like uh... that's, that's how I feel too. I feel, I feel just uh, like a deep, deep connection to this place. But I, I don't. I mean, my grandparents moved here after World War II from England, but I don't feel any connection uh, to England, to mm. Manchester, or to Britishness or to, I feel, you know, much more of a connection. I feel a connection first and foremost to Montreal and to Montrealers, mm. then to secondary to Quebec and then maybe third Canada. But yeah, I mean, identities end up like you you deal with that in your film. They're quite overlapping and they can change over time and you don't uh, necessarily have to choose just one or one, you know, it doesn't have to be that yeah. way. Although definitely nationalists, you know, all over the world want you to choose and want you to say exactly, you know, to choose one.
2: I mean, human beings are, uh, we're defined as a species by the fact that we storytell, right? We can reach into the past and we can project into the future. So coming up with stories about who we are, where we're from, and including and excluding the people around us is a way that we, we operate through time. It's a survival mechanism in a lot of ways. and for me i'm wary of trying to you know pick uh, like my flags you know yeah. I, I have the places that i'm connected to of course polish culture is important to me but it's it, you know it's the it's it's the fla- it's the color of the rooms i grew up in it's the smell of the house it's the language i heard but it doesn't mean that i exclude the other parts you know of, yeah. of, of me and where i'm from so i'm very connected to the city because I think Montreal has the energy of a city that absorbs people from different places. It's always been a place in between and with conflicting energies, you know.
1: Yeah, I like the, the image you had at one point in the movie where you said that I grew up surrounded by people haunted by ghosts from elsewhere. It's such a beautiful image. And I, I mean, that's, I, I'm familiar with that. And I remember, uh, not nearly as dramatic as you, but I remember when my grandmother was dying, I remember having these conversations with her. We were going through her stuff. Cause she had to move out of place into like a, like a kind of a residential place where she could get better care and everything. And we found all these things from World War II, like random stuff, like pictures of her looking really young and beautiful and hot, mm-hmm. like with like some guy who looks like a movie star. We're like, who's that? That's not grandpa. I have the exact same thing with my grandpa. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, uh, Shirtless on top of it. Oh really? <laughs> Two shirtless guys. We found two as well. Oh, man, that's so funny. And, like, we found, like, grandma with this, looking, like, ridiculously hot with this really good-looking guy. Who's that? That's not grandpa. And she goes, oh, that was, I was in love with him. Mm -hmm. We were, like, very much in love. We were, you know, uh, we were, like, a thing. We were a couple. And then Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to him? Oh, he died on the front. Uh, And then we (laughs) found another picture of her looking also fabulous with, like, another guy. And he is a guy that she... Because the war was long. And when you're young, right? She was... When the war started, she was 18. Mm. So... And she was driving an ambulance through London and with people all this crazy stuff. But this was another guy that she had fallen in love with. Mm. And uh, he also died. And all these... I mean, we had never heard any of these stories. And so we started asking her and getting all these amazing stories that... Um, and then you get that feeling where oh, I really wish I had asked her about this shit like a long time ago because <laughs> there's probably lots of stories that are mm. gone now forever. But I love that in the film at one point when you're talking to your grandmother and you said, yes, but this is on film and the film doesn't forget. You know, that, that high, like, okay, now I'm like, mm. I'm asking you these for these stories and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a good grandson. I'm going to remember them for you. That was very beautiful.
2: Yeah, the, the, uh, I mean, ironically, like in the film, you see the, the camera actually broke, like really, literally <laughs> that day or the day after. So and you're like, this is all I have. <laughs> yeah. But even with that, we, you know, in the editing, we, like, my idea for this movie, you know, when I started, I don't know, a long time ago, 2008, 2009, you know, way back, uh, I was going to follow my grandmother, make her a central character and really just try to showcase this person who had this extraordinary life um a person of profound like dignity and and uh you know humor too but who you would never expect to be sort of the hero of this this epic right like she she was my odysseus you know mm-hmm. but leopold bloom sort of she was both right <laughs> yeah. she, she was the person just navigating daily life in a big metropolitan city surrounded by other people with her kind of background but she's also somebody who wandered the earth for 10 years and went through all of these crazy places and had this life story you couldn't really believe you it couldn't know?
1: make up i mean if you wrote if you wrote her story as a novel people would say eh, it's not really very believable
2: yeah it's it's too much to be believed and i think that actually is part of the the real trauma you know this came up again and again through other people that i i met you know filming after my grandmother passed especially they were you know as much or more traumatized by the fact that their history had been erased that they had been gaslit essentially by all of the you know the the victorious powers of the second world war history had essentially gaslit them in telling them you didn't go through this thing, you know? And that was the thing that really, really, I think haunted a lot of these people and still does because there are still survivors. And in turn, I think that haunts a lot of the families, right? And I think this is an experience for a lot of people who've gone through these kind of, uh, you know, gone through different traumatic pasts coming from conflict and displacement is that, You carry these things in you, you know, you, you, from a very young age, they can be part of you, whether it's through the stories or whether it's through something, uh, deeper, like something genetic, you carry this stuff in you, you feel it. Right. So how do you acknowledge it and how do you get it out there? And when you come from a family like mine, my grandmother was a storyteller, but she left a lot of things out. You know, she didn't talk. uh, There were many things she only spoke about at the very end of her life. And and yet the house we grew up in you know the our world was defined by those things she'd gone through but never spoke about in many ways right so it's that process of kind of trying to give names and words to things that we didn't have a language for but that were part of the the part of the world we grew up in so I think it's, you know, for me, talking to her towards the end of her life and hearing these stories was really important. But then when she passed, seeing these photos and saying, like, who are these two guys that she's, you know, got draped around her, shirtless guys? She had a whole life that, that
1: of course, I never knew and never will. You yeah, know? it's it's completely wild. I mean, I remember being at a history conference in the, it must have been like the late 1990s. And there were people there, like, like there's like this Cree guy. There was an Abenaki woman, and they were talking about mass graves at residential schools, and that there had been they had like they had seen it with their own eyes, and even these even these people at the conference who were super super pro Indigenous and they were you know these are not like National Post like yeah we like like apologists or anything like that they were people who were predisposed to be really sympathetic. They said, "Oh, this is an exaggeration." um you may think that that happened but it that didn't happen there wasn't that many people that died mm. there and this is an exaggeration i don't i don't think this helps the cause and all this stuff and so i was very interested to see when they recently unearthed these mass graves next to residential schools uh, i contacted uh one of the people cuz i'm still in touch with him through facebook and he lives up in a in a cree community up by james bay And I said, So, what do you think about this? And he said, Well, it was very validating after being gaslit by historians for so long and told that, like, we're misremembering Mm. what I saw with my own fucking eyes. Like, so I I was thinking of that with with your movie because, you know, there's this similar phenomenon that at a certain point it's been so long that I, I can't remember. I think it's a family friend in your film where she says, You know, after a while you start to wonder, maybe I am. In, you know, embellishing mm-hmm. or misremembering this—it's been so long now, and that's really sad. I mean,
2: yeah, it's again, it's a pretty complicated thing because you know, it happens with all of us as humans. I think we, uh, the stories that we tell to others and to ourselves, and some to some extent, they become sort of codified and and over time, sort of rigid, and they get reduced down to these details that might move around a little bit but that's the story that's what happened you know it's hard to say that that's an objective truth right like that's what you remember but it's why you remember it that way is 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 complicated. And I think uh, for me, seeing my grandmother and her sister fight, for example, about these basic facts about <laughs> that their... Was, I
1: loved it that you, you put that in there. That was fantastic. That's all thanks
2: to my editor. She she picked out these things because this is what the, the end of the story I was saying before about the film I wanted to make was I wanted to make a film about my grandmother being sort of the hero of this movie, you know, or at least showing the heroic aspects of her character and her life history. While living a very modest life here, um, in other words, having her as the storyteller and the historian, but then she passed away right so it it was difficult to do that, so we had to find a different way and over time, that ended up being incorporating all of these years of different pieces the collage of collage of of many years and uh you know having uh, yeah those pieces with my grandmother and her sister fighting in Sheffield that's from 2008 like the film came out <laughs> in 2018 so that was 10 yeah. years earlier but it was my editor, editor who had had pieced that together but to see the sisters fighting over this like basic memory did we get to Iran in 1942 or 43 and they're, they they entrenched in their camps right like the other one is wrong oh my sister she remembers nothing she's losing (laughs) her memory and they're so steadfast in like arguing over this detail but it's the emotion that for me that matters you know it's the emotion uh, behind them arguing uh, that that is true irrespective of whether it's 42 or 43 the need to to remember the history correctly is the thing that mattered for me in that moment.
1: Yeah. The, another parallel I thought it, with your film was, uh, there's this book that I haven't read it in a long time. It's written by this historian, Robert Abzug. And the book is called Inside the Vicious Heart. And it's a very, very, it's a creepy, creepy book. But he had somehow, I, I don't remember the the weird kind of story, but he had heard through the grapevine that there were all these uh, American um, veterans of World War II that were sitting on film footage and photographs of concentration camps, and so and he, he heard about this. Through, so he started going around like the United States and to talking to these these old guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, they had kind of liberated some concentration camps. And even though they were you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, they were young guys like. They had the presence of mind even at that age to say, um, I think this is so – complete." You, know, you have some corn-fed kid from Idaho who's mm-hmm. seeing like concentration camps. Like, you know, it was absolutely like you're being on, on another planet. Like it was so completely surreal to them. And they said, you know, I think people are going to say that this didn't happen. Nobody back home is gonna believe that this happened. So they pooled their money in many instances and purchased like cameras and purchased like you know something, even in some cases like video footage, and they made like with them in it, they took pictures and even some cases video, and then they would show that to their kids and grandkids Mm. because they're like, This really happened. Mm. I'm your grandfather, (laughs) like I was actually there. This really happened and that i just i find it so interesting how how technology gets kind of brought in as a as a key sort of something that makes memory mm-hmm. and cultural memory more kind of permanent right i'm wondering like to what extent do you think technology like distorts memory and kind of and has distortive and how what ways does it kind of
0: help um It's,
2: uh, you've seen the film, so you know that at the end of it, like without hopefully spoiling anything, I've found some film footage that, you know, had basically sat on a shelf for the last seven decades. And the film shows the camp and, you know, I can recognize people in this footage. So those images become for me, you know, On the one hand, they're home movies because they're telling the family history. But on the other hand, they're showing world history or they're showing a chapter of the Second World War. So they're communal in a larger history. That footage was never used for anything. But because I came across it when I already had the story worked out and I knew how to tell the story of, you know, I was the storyteller now there was i was able to give meaning to it and and give context to it the issue with technology in general these days is that there's so many images and there's such a prol- proliferation of of content you know audiovisual stuff it's so easy for us to like pick a phone out of our pocket and film or photograph anything that i think we're at the point of being overwhelmed by the technology and you're seeing nefarious forces basically exploit this, right? Where they can shape the narrative by putting out so much disinformation, contradictory narratives, instead of there's one party line, everybody sticks to it, and we erase everything else. It's every piece of information can get out there because the more of it that's out there, the more confused everybody is, and the easier it is for, for us, the political power to actually make policy decisions affecting people's lives without them being able to recognize it. All of which is a long way to say it's, uh, you know, I think there's a human uh, impulse to storytelling and uncovering the truth, you know, between entre guillemets. There's a responsibility as individuals that we have to get as close to whatever the truth is, whatever objective truth is, you know, as possible, And uh, how to do that, I don't know. That's for, you know, people who have a better sense of communications theory and, and, uh, and sociology than me. But, I mean, we're in a very confused and, and dangerous time. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, but it's always been that way. For our, we have listeners all over the world. But just for those of you who don't know, uh, Jonathan and I, we live in a, in a province where on our license plates it says, uh, je me souviens, like, you know, I remember right which is always just such a loaded term because the question always is well well what do you remember well do you remember the fact that new france had slavery oh well, no no we don't remember that uh, do you remember that we stole all the native people's land and stuff like no no we invited them here so anytime there's a national project or even a family project mm. it gets held together by these stories by these narratives and then i guess the question is you know, which I th- I think you you answered very well just there is is, you know, to what extent do these stories serve life or or not? It's like you know Nietzsche's wonderful essay uh, on the uses and disadvantages of history for life, and he goes through different kinds of history, and mm-hmm. there's there's a kind of history that's sort of Black Mirror, entire history of you, that that can root people in nostalgia and in where they just. They're stuck and they can't ever experience anything new Mm. and have any vital connection to the moment and to the present because Mm. they're stuck. Uh, But then there's other kinds of history that he describes, which sounds very much like what's happening in your your film, which is life-giving and even life-preserving in Tanzania and things like that. Like they'd probably without those stories, they might not have done very well.
2: Yeah. It, a lot of people didn't. I mean, there I, since the film has been released online on Al Jazeera, I've started getting emails from people. And uh, one woman wrote me recently to say that her father remembered, uh, the, I guess he was British, um, so in East Africa um, at the time under the British colonial uh, system. But he remembered the Polish refugees um, being there. And he remembered Three of them being sent to the um, essentially the mental health institution next to where he was working, and that these people were completely uh, overwhelmed by what they'd been through. And you know, they, they, they broke down because
1: they couldn't carry the weight of their experiences, you know. And it's uh, well, a lot of them did. I mean, the most famous, Taddeus Borowski, you know, this way to the gas, ladies and gentlemen, like he wrote that book after World War II, and then he like yeah. blew, blew his brains out in 1949. Like, yeah, he, he couldn't live with the ghosts. The weight of what they'd been through. Oh, he would just – the the horrible things that he had seen and experienced uh, and even done in some instances. Like, yeah. he couldn't – he he drank, like, heavily and he eventually – I think he made it to 1949.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the case of a lot of people. But the – for me, I think the the positive way to, to approach it is to see the common humanity that people go through because, you know, we, we – <laughs> since the beginning of time, we've been causing each other pain, right? People who look differently from us or for whatever reason, us versus them, they're in the out group. Um, Whereas I think if we examine these histories that we are from as individuals and we use them as bridges towards other people's experiences, then we can break through that, you know, lack of empathy and compassion and actually connect with people, whatever culture they're coming from, But sharing similar histories, right? I think in a country like Canada, being the history we have and being the type of country it is, we're well placed for that. Where, as immigrants and settlers, you know, we can take these histories of our Polish grandparents or whatever, Jewish grandparents, or if we're Congolese or if we're Haitian or if we're from the Philippines or whatever, but find those common points of experience, right? And and actually create the the. Society around us that
1: we 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 want to live in that is compassionate and inclusive. So, well, there's enough distance. There's enough distance from those other fights, you know, across oceans and continents that people can sort of. It's almost like people talking about things like on ecstasy or something, like you know, for PTSD. That there's enough distance that you can talk about painful things without it hurting. Like I remember my Lebanese friends growing up in Montreal here. Uh, they would joke about the fact that, oh yeah, back in Lebanon, my family and his family are shooting at each other from apartment buildings, and but here we're all Lebanese. We all like eat falafel, and it's all good, and we're just, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I remember being just blown away that you know they people had come away from the civil war. There you had you know Greek Orthodox. Uh, you know, Shiite Muslims, Sunni Muslims, you had, you know, very Jews, like Lebanese Jews, all in Montreal, hanging out, getting along fine. And I said, but would you be friends if you went back to Lebanon? They're like, fuck no. Mm -hmm. We can just, we can deal with these things and live in peace with these stories and with these histories, because we have a safe distance from them. And apparently this is, I mean, this is in your film, but this is Uh, In diaspora studies, Mm -hmm. they talk about this, like, a lot, that, you know, Italians became Italian primarily in New York, in Montreal, Mm -hmm. in Sydney, Australia, in Argentina, Mm -hmm. in Rio. That in Italy, they thought of themselves as, like, somebody who's, I'm Florentine, I'm from, I'm Sicilian. the, Mm -hmm. The Italian nationalist project didn't really grab a lot of people until... Mm-hmm. but it but people who are part of the diaspora community became italian right. right it's this weird thing where you just uh you know I've seen the same thing living in the states for years that if you meet somebody who's canadian uh even if back in canada you might be on other sides of various issues like so, oh okay got a my homeboy <laughs> like you're, you're canadian you know sure there's you, there's a there's a recognition
2: or like a, yeah a mutual uh acknowledgement if you come from the same pond you know the same waters yeah i see that i mean in the case of people like my my grandparents or my grandmother um trying to assimilate not like forget about montreal and canada but within the polish community here in montreal let's say um they were coming from this really outsider niche experience, having gone through Siberia and Iran, and you know East Africa, so the dominant post war narrative around the Polish community was that they were victims of the Nazis, and everybody in that community you know had had escaped that specific oppression. Uh, So there wasn't always a lot of room for these people, you know, they had, they were kind of like a a micro community within their own diaspora community. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see how they kind of got wrapped up in that narrative. I mean, also because it was erased and everything, it's part of it that there was this move to not draw attention to their history, but, uh, they, they struggled with it. I mean, they, the only people who could really understand what they were, had been through were other people
1: who had been through it. Yeah, right. Well, I've have heard you know the the church that we go to, there's all these like old Germans. It's a German church, um, and called Saint John's, just uh, on Jamos and Prince Arthur so way down there. But, but there's these Germans, and a lot of the people of the church are from diath- like German cities uh, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe. That were German majority cities for centuries going back you know going back to like the middle ages mm-hmm. and when with the whole shuffling that happened um, because of you know the interwar period and the World War two there was this all these Germans were deported from places, mm-hmm. and many of them had not been to Germany like. Nobody in their family had been to Germany in, like, generations. They were completely a part of that place. They did not support uh, the Nazis at all. They were not. uh, But because just guilt by association, them being German, uh, they deported, I mean, I think it was a total, like, 4 million ethnic Germans were deported mm. from various uh, countries in eastern and central Europe. Yeah, primarily Poland, that's uh, say, But po- Poland of and and you know what became uh, like Prague and Czechoslovakia, yeah. they got rid of like Rilke, one of the most famous German poets. I mean, he wasn't from Germany, he was from Prague. Mm-hmm. And he there was a thriving kind of German literary and artistic community there. Mm-hmm. That's all that was all, you know. I, and so yeah, they also were people who felt like uh, their story had been erased because they they lost everything. They were they ended up being refugees, getting mm-hmm. kicked out of countries. And they're like, we didn't do anything. We didn't support the, the wrong side. We didn't mm-hmm. do – we supported our neighbors. We were not anti-Semitic. We were not like – but by association, we were kicked out as well. And so I think, yeah, refugees end up being the um, – you know, these people and stories that don't fit into a new uh narrative. You know, mm-hmm. whether it be a new idea of what um, you know, Syria or whatever country is going to mm-hmm. be, you get all these like loose ends. But anyway, I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is I I highly recommend all of our listeners go and um you know watch the movie and if you I recommend you go and get the full Ninety one, ninety one minute. Uh,
2: yeah, ninety one with credits. Yeah, like yeah.
1: ni- ninety one, the full hour and a half uh, version one, which is fantastic. Or if you just want to uh, be cheap, <laughs> go, <laughs> go to Al Jazeera and there's a there's a uh, shortened, edited forty five minute version of it there, which is fantastic, and it's uh, yeah, it's a wonderful. Do you? What are you? I mean, this is sort of we always ask at the end of the podcast. What are you working on? Now, what are your sort of future projects?
2: Uh, it's a big question. I mean, um, things sort of got derailed, of course, over the last year and a half. Um, so, I have a couple pro, couple doc projects, truly really in development to really get too much into. But the uh, I'm leaving actually a few weeks to go up north with an organization uh, based in Inukjuak to uh, do oral, to film oral testimonies of elders up there. Uh, sort of, you know, for the organization. It's not my project per se, but uh, that's that's what's coming up. I'm going to be uh, going up there for that. And uh, a few other little things on the go, just sort of taking a, taking a step back from everything. Yeah, know. I mean,
1: what documentary filmmakers are doing with oral histories is, I think, one of the most fascinating uses of the technology because it used to be that, you know, they say, like, history's written by the winners, which I... Uh, a little. I'm not crazy by that expression because I think some losers make great historians. But I mean, the Old Testament is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but the it, you know, but there is a lot of truth to it. And usually, if you're the one that makes the documents, the paper documents, mm-hmm. if you're the one that draws the borders, you get to say what happened, right? And and eventually, the stories, the people die, and that goes out with them. But what a lot of uh, You know, documentary filmmakers going around or even radio people going around and, like, talking to elders and getting their stories, it's really powerful. Because, you know, very often it turns out that the oral histories are totally true or or closer to the truth than the document's. I mean, this has happened in in many fields. That so, this is this yeah. is really, really a great thing. My very
2: small little thing, but my brother uh, works for the Museum of History in Ottawa. Or actually, he just switched, but he was there for a while. And his uh, colleagues were part of the team that found the remains of the HMS Terror uh, in the Arctic that that had sunk. Like, yeah. But, you know, they've been searching for this thing for decades and decades and decades and using all of this technology. And basically, the local community had been saying since the time that it had sunk, the Inuit community up there had been saying, it's right over there. You know, it's, it's right over there. Look for it over there. And nobody had listened to them. And, of course, they find, you know, a uh, hundred years later that it was more or less right where people had been saying the whole time. So <laughs>
1: example of that. Well the other example that springs to my mind is like in National Geographic and all that they used to have a, a distribution map of of where narwhals are found. And it 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 came out later on that the distribution map perfectly mapped basically where uh, white oceanographers had gone to do research. <laughs> and meanwhile like people all over the uh, the kind of the Arctic circle had been saying, oh yeah yeah we see narwhals this time of year at this place and this place and this place. <laughs> But because they didn't have somebody with a PhD who's a professor saying, "We saw this many," um, but then they started taking into account more kind of oral histories about, uh, you know, wildlife distribution and things like that. And turns out, it gave a much truer picture mm-hmm. of the distribution. And they found they eventually found bones and tusks and things like that. You know, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's a really cool thing. Anyway, thank you so much, thank you. and thank you for making this uh, very powerful. A moving movie, and um, I, I hope my, I don't have grandchildren yet, but I, I hope my grandchildren. I hope I have a grandson as good as you. <laughs> it's that's really beautiful what you did for your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Thank Thanks. you. Here, take care.